As we continue on in our Exodus series, we come to, I mean, I think all of these passages are a bit peculiar, but we come to one that stands out to me as really peculiar. Now, you've heard it, and Lindsay did a great job. I mean, I don't think any of us could, while I do this, even for the 40-ish minutes that we go, any of us could hold up our arms the entire time. Just go, no, just hold them up. But as you hear this passage, and even if you're new with us, kind of bring you into where we are, God has been doing powerful works for his people Israel the entire time that we have been reading. He is saving his people. He delivered them through the sea. He destroyed the enemy, Egypt. He showed his power over Egypt through the plagues. He corrected the Israelites in their grumbling and still provided for them even as they were whining that they didn't have what they wanted. In every way, God has been demonstrating himself miraculously, powerfully, both so his name would be proclaimed throughout all the earth and so that his people, Israel, would see him and worship him and know that he is trustworthy. Think about it, after 400 years in slavery in Egypt, there would certainly be doubts as to who the character of Israel's God was. Certainly be doubts. And in every moment, he is demonstrating himself as faithful. Now, today's passage is, is interesting to me for a lot of reasons. In fact, as I, was, as I was preparing this and talking with some friends about it, I just started to bullet out all these questions I had about the passage all these questions, like, why this way and not that way? Why do this? Why, why that? Never done that? You just go, Lord, why? Why, why did you do that? Why, did it, why, why the arms? Why the arms? Why do you have to hold your arms up? You literally just drowned the Egyptians a couple months ago in the sea. All Moses had to do was kind of hold out that staff at the end. You just drowned them. There were 10 plagues. You could have done that. You could have just said, Amalekites, no more. And yet, there's a battle? There's a battle you want your people to do? But not only that, you had just said recently, when you were leading them around, after they left the land, you didn't want to bring them by the land of the Philistines, lest they get into battle and get afraid and turn around. And now you're leading them into battle? The Israelites don't have a standing army. They don't, they don't have this group of people ready to go. Nor do you, do you really think that they were just making weapons of war the entire time they were enslaved in Egypt? Probably not. I don't think the nation that had enslaved them was all too interested in them making an army. So now you have this untrained people going into battle with the Malachites when you just as you were leading them out of the land, led them away from the Philistines so that they wouldn't be afraid. 
And so even in these just few chapters of Exodus, we, we go, why? Why this? Why not that? Why did you do it this way? Something I struggle with, maybe you do the same, is, is tunnel vision. You just get focused on one thing happening. You have one idea. You go, this is what we're going to do. This is all we're going to do. So, like, right? and so it's just the one task that is before you. It's just the one thing. And you have no idea what else might be going on around you. Everything else that might be happening in any given moment. And yet in any given moment, much more is happening than you or I might ever realize. Much more is going on than you or I ever know. God is working. And even if I say this, because this is a true statement, the Lord fights your battles. Right? You go, yeah, amen, yeah, Lord fights my battles. Like, we, we get that. Like, that's a, that's, a, that's a Christian saying you say. It's just, yeah, he fights my battles. Lord fights for me. I'm like, yeah, but he doesn't fight for you like this that often where you just put your hands in the air. That's not, that's not the battle I usually fight. Don't do that. So we go, yeah, the Lord fights your battles. But why does he fight the battle this way? Why does he do this? Because you don't need to do that. I mean, I, I've had plenty of evidence that God fights my battles through the plagues, through the Passover, through the drowning of the Egyptian army in the sea. I'm kind of aware that God fights my battles. So why the hands up? Why this moment? Well, I'm not going to be able to answer all of those questions for you, but we get to see the work of God as the Israelites face their first enemy outside of Egypt. In chapter 17, they have an enemy as they leave outside of Egypt. In chapter 18, they have Jethro the Midianite. So another nation comes but one comes to wage war and one comes in peace. And so we'll see some differences this week and in next week between chapter 17 and 18 in the way the nation is interacting with other nations. But today, there are at least three battles going on. You might find more. There are at least three. There's the battle that's down at the bottom of the hill that Joshua's fighting with a bunch of untrained guys. There's that battle. There's the battle going on on the hill, which is a battle of weakness. Moses' weakness and inability to hold his arms up. Moses is fighting too. Then... In a sense, there's this battle for God's fame, his name, his reputation. And in, in these, the Lord is in all of them. So you've heard it read. Let's look at what's going on, because there's certainly a bizarre battle strategy happening here. This is not the way I would tell you to fight a war. We start with the Amalekites, 17.8, then Amalek, or Amalek, or Amalek, 
I actually asked a friend, a Hebrew teacher, how to pronounce it. He gave me two pronunciations. I'm going to, well, yeah, I think you're supposed to be like this, but for, for speaking to English speakers, just say Amalek. I'm going to forget that. I'll probably say Amalek. He came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now, this is really the Amalekites. So he's talking about the people who come from Amalek. The Amalekites, they're coming. They are, they are a nomadic people. Interestingly enough, in Genesis thirty-six twelve, we realize that Amalek is the grandson of Esau. And so we have, right, Jacob and Esau, we have descendants of Esau now fighting descendants of Jacob. Right? Like, like so we have this happening, this kind of war between generations, between family after centuries. But they're nomadic people, and it appears that they are the first national enemy. Now, I say national, they haven't been brought into the land yet, but they still are a people. Right? They're, a, they're a defined people, and this is their first outside of Egypt enemy. And they don't have Egypt to fight their battles anymore. They don't, they, they don't have the shroud of protection of Egypt, as they just live there, they'll be good. Remember last week, they're like, well, I wish we were back in Egypt. Now it's just them. And so they came to fight. But the Amalekites don't just show up here. They show up in the wandering, as we see, in the conquest of the land. The Amalekites are there. And the Amalekites are also there in the kingdom. So they become this pesky group of people that always show up. They're always there. They finally do get wiped out. But not for a long time. They just nip at the heels of the Israelites throughout generations. They're still there. They're still there. They're still there. They're still there. And so they come up and they fight against Israel. Now, there's a preparation for this battle in verse 9, that again, this is where if you like, if, if Moses got together with his joint chiefs, they would not say do this. This is not the kind of war logic that you might give to fight a people. But listen to this. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight. That makes sense. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. That's literally your strategy. You kind of duck, duck, goose it, pick some people I don't know, any, meeny, miny, mo, however you want. You pick some people. I'll go on the hill with the staff. And he's like, all right. Now, also in this, this is the first time we get to hear about Joshua. Joshua is the one who actually leads the people of Israel into the land. Now, we won't get to this because we're not in the book of Numbers. But what happens is, though there's this expectation that this generation is going to be brought into the land, as we see, they don't really trust the Lord. They struggle to believe his promises, the things he said that he would do. And so, in fact, the whole generation that was brought out of Egypt, they don't make it in. It's their children who make it in. Kind of the next generation up, they make it in. Joshua is the one who will lead them in because Joshua is one of the ones who realized that they could take the land. So this, in Exodus, we get this little bit of news about Joshua, who will be the future leader of Israel. But think about this from the perspective of the one reading it. The one reading this already knows who Joshua is. 
They already know who Joshua is. They're not reading the story going, oh, wow, who's that guy? Like, they're already aware. I get the composition of this book. They know who Joshua is. And so this passage also gets to reveal to us that Joshua, this is, this is our first sign of Joshua. He's a warrior. He will listen to the voice of Moses. He will respond and he will fight against Israel's enemies. And so this is, in a sense, our first exposure to him is one where we get to see him in a place of both listening to the voice of Moses, trusting in what God is doing, and going to fight the battle. So Joshua is to bring the army. That's verse 9. Moses brings the staff. Now, if you have forgotten the staff, that was used in all the plagues. Or not all the plagues, but it was used in the plague narrative. That he would stretch out the staff, that he would use the staff. And so the staff was a sign of God's power. It wasn't God's power. It was a sign of God's power, a demonstration of God's power. So there's a battle that goes on uh, down on the ground. And there's something going on on the hill. This is their strategy. Interestingly enough, nobody thinks it's bizarre. I can't sit in a room with three church members and come up with a strategy without it being challenged. Doesn't matter what it's about. What color toilet paper do you think we should have? What about this? What about that? Well, I don't know. I think about it, right? If I came to a room of Genesis members and I said, here's what we're going to do. I need you to go over here and I'm going to go on a hill with a staff and I think it's going to be okay. Just, you know, we'll just pick some members and we'll go fight a battle. I'll go on the hill. Nobody's going. Nobody's going. You don't trust me enough. You don't trust God enough. You're going to come up with some theological reason that we shouldn't do that anymore. Like, I'm going to, I get it. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to explain away everything. It doesn't matter what it is. But isn't it, to me, not, maybe not to you, but to me, isn't it odd that they just kind of go along with the plan? Yeah, sure. I mean, we don't fight. We don't really have a ton of weapons. But, you know, you, 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 let's go. We're fighting people who know how to fight. They're nomadic, so they're probably used to this area way more than we are. We're not familiar with it. But let's go ahead and fight. I'm in. No challenge is presented here. Just doing it. Now, in this, I want to make two links because this can be, when we read this, and you might have the same the same questioning, kind of like, I, I don't get it. Like, what in the world does this mean for me? Right? There's not a, like, the United States is not a, a Christian nation in the sense of, like, we're not, God didn't choose us like he chose the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham. We don't have that history. We have a different history. So we hear this, we go, well, what does that mean? Now think about this, though. Think about what's going on. The Israelites are headed to the place that God had promised. And what do they come up against in this moment but an enemy that is opposed to them doing what God has designed for them to do? If you say it like that, don't you go, hey, yeah, I know that. Right? That every person here in Christ that God is, God is, is moving in, God's spirit has sealed that he is indwelling, has, has a way in which you are to reflect him, and a way in which you are to proclaim him, and a way in which you are to serve within the church, a way in which you are to glorify him. And isn't it true that as you go about doing that, you find yourself attacked? 
In Ephesians chapter 6, we learn from the Apostle Paul, a man who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and then Jesus said, no, I am. And he's like, okay, you are. We have him teaching to the church in Ephesus that the battle, he uses that phrase, or we do not wage war against flesh and blood, but there's a, there's a different battle going on. We fight that battle. Interesting, though, is that that battle's going on here, too. It's a battle of faith, isn't it? Are we going to do this, and will we believe that, that this has significance? That this matters? You heard Lindsay say it. Is, it. is it the arms up that did it? No. It was the means that God used to demonstrate his power. As you pursue life in Christ, you will find yourself attacked. You will. That there will be those who seek to stop or impede or discourage you from going to the next place God has for you, the next place that God has for us as a church, that that will happen. So we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised. But then secondly, in the battle itself, this is true. It's true for them there in the moment. It's true for us. We are never fully prepared for what comes our way. Because the battle isn't about your own personal preparation. It's not about how you did. It's not about the training that you got. It's not about your military prowess. It's not about how smart you are. That is not what's going on. It is about your confidence in the character and faithfulness of your God. That that is the thing that is actually going on. And so we are never prepared. We never say, no, I got this. It's like, I never got this, ever, never. I'm thinking about how good that coffee is for one, but I'm thinking also about one of the things that we love in leaders is like assuredness. We love it. We love to hear people go, no, we got this. It's like, yeah! And man, how discouraging is it when that doesn't happen? When you don't got it. It's like we, we, our hearts want to attach themselves to to people and places and things that have this air of confidence, but the confidence is so often in our own strength, in our own ability, in our own power, in what we know we can accomplish, or in our track record. Your track record doesn't save you, friends. It doesn't get you where you need to go. You can't say, well, I've fought a battle before, so clearly this one's going to go well. Like, it just doesn't work like that. So here they are, unprepared to fight a battle. Their battle plan is, you get some people and go down there. I'll get some people and go up here, but I'll have the staff. Great. Hope that stick works. 
That's how I view it. But they just go. They go. Now you will see the faith of Israel wavering throughout their history. It is like a roller coaster. Sometimes they are up and God could do anything. And sometimes they're down like, "Ah, I'm not too sure about that. Right? Because there's really only one who's unwavering, and that's the Lord Jesus. So, so we will see this unwavering up here, wavering down here. We've seen that in Moses already in the early chapters of Exodus where he's just like, uh, I'm not your guy. And the Lord's like, well, first I picked you, and second, I'm, I'm the guy. I'm the guy. So Joshua doesn't question his role. Moses has what he's going to do. There's a battle happening on the ground. Look at 10 through 13. Joshua did as Moses told him. He fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. When Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. When he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew, what's that word? You need to know it. Weary. Moses' hands grew weary. In chapter 18, Moses' soul grows weary trying to manage a gigantic nation of people on his own. But here, his hands grow weary. So they took a stone and they put it under him. Okay? So they put it under him so he could sit. Standing is hard for a long time. All right? So now they put that. And then Aaron and her held up his hands because by the time Moses is sitting, right, isn't it now easier for them to hold up his hands? They don't have to be like, I got it, right? Like, like, no, like, you sit, it seems to, seems to work when your hands are above your head, so if we could lower your head, we can help you lift your hands. That's what we'll do. And it worked. The other odd thing here, again, to me is Aaron and her aren't like, this is bananas. They don't, they don't sit there and go, why do this? But they're like, no, somebody get a chair. Like, he needs a chair. We have to hold him because it's working. So the battle on the ground is happening. The army, unprepared, underqualified, but he's going. And the Lord is empowering those who are fighting. There's the battle on the hill with the staff in his hands where Moses can't sustain his own arms. It's like it just doesn't matter how many, you know, shoulder flies you do. You can't hold up your arms until the evening. It's not going to work. And so he can't hold up his arms. So others help. But when his arms are up, Israel prevails. So is it the strength of the warriors? And we'll put warriors in quotes. I don't think they're really warriors. Like, dude, I've been living in a tent. I'm not a warrior. But is it, is it the strength of Joshua and those he picked that is winning the battle? No. And is it the strength of Moses, a man he picked, who is winning the battle? No. The strongest person in Israel could have been down on the ground. And if Moses' arms were down, that person was getting clocked.
so you see how multiple things here are going on. The one down on the hill might not even know that that's what's happening. Or his arms up or his arms down. Somebody look. Like, they may not even know. They're fighting. They're in it. They just know that sometimes they're winning and sometimes they're not. Now, for you, Christian, I don't think the application is, you know, go to war and have somebody lift their hands up. But here's something that is true for you. Much as you try and hide it, as much as you might try and work out or run, as much as you try and mask it with what you present on social media and the vacations you go on or whatever else, summarily, you are weak. You are weak. And you're going to spend about half your life coping with that. I can't do what I used to do. Well, back then you couldn't do what you thought you could. You're weak. If it depended on Moses to hold his hands up, the Israelites lose. You're weak. Now, not only that, recognizing our weakness is a good thing, but then what do we have to do? Well, then where is my strength? The strength for the Christian is the Spirit. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, when the disciples are trying to figure out when that kingdom's starting, Jesus says, I don't want you to worry about that, but this is what I want you to think about. You will receive power... When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the end of the age, right? All the world, to the end of the earth. That's what he's doing. So, so he is going out. The weakness that we feel is real. It shouldn't increase our desire for personal strength, but increase our desire for the one who actually has it, and it doesn't run out. So we don't need to mask our weakness because we all have it. The battle on the ground in the valley was not won because of the strength of the ones fighting it. Nor was the battle on the hill won because of the strength of the one who could hold up his arms. Weakness is evident. But what also seems to be the case in this passage is that help is there. Verse 12. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone, they put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands. One on one side, one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So we're introduced, other than the battle on the ground, which we know Joshua's a part of, we're introduced to four people. Joshua, Moses, Aaron, and Hur. Those are the four names we get in this. Each person is doing something different. Joshua grabbed the warriors, warriors, and went down to the field. 
Moses is the one who has the staff. Aaron and her recognize what's going on, and they help Moses by holding up his arms. Now, no one here questions how they are to respond. No one steps in and goes, I don't know. Aaron doesn't go, hey, can I spell you? You know, let me hold it up for a little while. Let me do that. Her doesn't do that. Joshua doesn't go, hey, let me, let me run up there. Let me help you out soon. I got you. Right? They seem to be okay down there. So Joshua's down on the ground fighting. Moses holding up his arms. Aaron and her are helping to hold up Moses' arms so that the battle can be won. And no one is wishing that they were in the other space. They're all just taking their spot. What has the Lord given to his church? At their faith, right? They believe in the Lord and he's sealed by the Spirit. What has he given to us? But gifts. Gifts. Where can you read about spiritual gifts? Uh, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, 1 Corinthians 12, and Romans 12. That's going to give you the gifts. Funny thing about the spiritual gifts, and I say this if we're, if we're ever chatting about them, is that no, no one chapter or no one epistle gives you a full treatment of it. So it doesn't seem that Paul was ultimately concerned in giving the Romans a spiritual theology on the gifts. Like he just said, here it is. Like here, here, like, but if you compare them, they're all talking about them a little differently. Which gifts exist, which don't. But what has God given to his church? Ways in which they function so that together they can accomplish more for God than if they just try to do it in their own strength. And done with a proper understanding of who we are in Christ, what gets to happen? He's going, no, I'll just do this. I'm fine. I don't need to do that. You do that. Right? You do that. You do that. Let me help you do what you're supposed to do well. And in that, we have the way God has designed us to support what is going on, which is to proclaim his name in all the world. What would have happened if Amalek won in this moment, right? All those promises about what God was going to do through this nation to the world, they might have been questioned. They might have been questioned. The battle is going on on the ground. It's going on on the hill. But then think about this. The result is not about Moses. It's not about Aaron. It's not about her. And it's not about Joshua. Now there's going to be a cool little note in here, which I love. We'll see in just a moment. But after victory, the result is not, I knew we could do it. I knew it. I knew it. Just got, you know, this guy is new battle shoes. That's why it happened. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Again, that doesn't happen. I believe David is the one who finally has to finish that out. So now the Lord instructs Moses. You see here, Moses is now, 
he's also the people's historian. And so write this out. And listen to this. Recite it in the ears of Joshua. Now at this point in time, Joshua does not know the role that he will have for the nation. But what does he need to know? What does he need to know? That God can do it. That God can do it. So recite this to Joshua. So Moses built an altar. And this is, 15 and 16 are oddly translated. In fact, if you read any, any translation that exists in this room, I, I think they will all be different. They will all be different. Moses built an altar, called the name of it, saying, the Lord is my banner. Right? Like, we're going to go ahead and proclaim this as, as his victory. They don't claim it as their own. The Lord did it. Saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Yeah? Huh? I got it up until, like, the Lord is my banner, I'm in. And then you add on, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And your translation might read differently. Right? Even if you like follow my footnote down in verse 3, it goes, a slight change would yield upon the banner. You lift up your hand to the banner. Right? There's people trying to go, what, what is this? So one thing for sure, verse 15, the Lord is my banner. or a hand upon, or a hand toward the throne. What I think is happening here is that Moses is saying, right, a hand up to God. My hand up to the Lord's throne, the throne of the Lord. Well, that's what just happened, isn't it? With my hands up, we won. But it was the Lord. The Lord is the one who brings the victory. And then there is this reminder, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Which is odd again, because he wants to just wipe them out. But in this, what did Joshua need to know? That God could be trusted as the one who fought. Joshua needed confidence in what God would do. And he saw it. Moses was given a time to worship and tell and proclaim God's victory and God's future victory. So the result of winning the battle was not, let's all go to the bar and celebrate. It was, let's worship the one who provided the victory. Let's worship the one who actually made it happen. And this is just one of those cool things about the Lord for us as we walk with him is that, is that even, even with all of this, we could say, oh, well, God, you know, God could have done it. God clearly, what did he do? This is God's strategy. He used the people that he had called to do the work that he was doing. He used the people he had called to do the work that he was doing, and this is what he does. Is it ridiculous in one sense that God would use us to go and proclaim how great he is to the ends of the earth? 
in one sense, it's totally ridiculous because I know you and you know me and we're not that good at it. It would be much better if God was just the majestic sky rider. I am real. Worship me. Of course, then we would probably just believe it was someone else. So the Christian has these two things that are real at the exact same time. The command to go and make disciples of all nations. To proclaim the greatness and goodness and saving power of the Lord Jesus to the end of the age. Everywhere must know about him. Everyone must hear about him. That's thing number one. Thing number two, Jesus says, I'm building my church. What? Well, who's doing it? You want me to go or you want to build it, man? Pick. You don't pick. But the only way that it's going to work as we as Genesis Community Church go out and proclaim that God is good to your people in your workplace or to your neighbors or to your children or in Genesis Kids right now when you're talking about the goodness of God, the only way it's going to work is if you have confidence that God will do the things he said he would do. So in one sense, it feels totally dependent upon you. And in another sense, it doesn't at all. When Jesus commands his disciples to go into all the world, he expects them to go. He expects them to go. And at the same time, what do we know but our own weakness, our own inability, that God calls us into situations and scenarios that don't seem to make any sense, and we must know, we must know that he is the one who is powerful. That he is the one who brings victory. That he is the one who empowers. And that he has given us what we need. One of, for, for Christians today, I think one of the most difficult things to do, and I, and I feel this way because I, I'm often one of these people, but also because I talk to many of us, Right? Seems like one of the most difficult things to do is go to somebody you know and love and tell them that Jesus loves them if they don't know him. What are all the things that we start to get afraid of? How are they going to view me? What's going to happen? What about this? I don't know if they're going to like what I have to say. I don't know if they're going to like the message that I bring. I don't want to ruin the relationship. I tell you what, it's going to be way more ruined if they're in hell. Like, like, so you don't want to ruin the relationship? You don't want to ruin what? Right? It's only going to get better if they believe. It's not going to get worse. So, so what are we afraid of? But we're afraid. Why? Because there is this part of us, and it's in so many of us, that it's dependent upon me to win. Why? Because that's how the world works. We look for power. We look for strength. We look for might. We look for education. We look for skill. We look for money. We look for savvy. We look for just people who could pull it off. You got to have a certain level of attractiveness. You got to have a certain level of money. You got to have a certain number of social media followers. And then we will listen to you. You go, I don't have any of that. You have the Lord. You have the Lord. Granted, you're going to battle with a pot and a spatula. Doesn't matter. You have the Spirit of God. (laughs) Use that spatula with all your might, friend. (laughs) It's the Lord. It isn't you. And yet at the same time, 
He delights in using you to accomplish his ends. He's always done it. He's doing it here. He's doing it in the next chapter. He's done it in the previous chapter. I mean, just think, these are the grumblers. We don't have enough to drink. We don't have enough to eat. We want to be back in Egypt. We want water. I don't care if it's from the stone. Like, I don't believe this is real. Like, that's how they're acting. That just happened. And what is God doing? But still using his grumbling, frustrated, stubborn-hearted, often disobedient people to accomplish a much greater end because his end game is the world knowing him. So wherever you are, if you're here in the room, if you're listening, or if it's later in the week and you're catching up with the sermon that you weren't here to hear, I'd ask you this, where, where might you need to repent? That either you've, you've focused too much on your own strength, or perhaps you focus too little on your own weakness and God's provision for you in that. He doesn't need your strength. He doesn't need your strength. He doesn't need your might. He doesn't need your training. He needs an availed heart. And he gives us that in his son. The spirit indwells us. And though we might at times disbelieve or struggle or wander, we can remember his faithfulness. In fact, just yesterday I started to recount with Courtney the past three years of us living in Texas, other than the heat and whatever else, like, you know. I mean, and we can't go, like, three months without some unique reminder that God's our provider. The list is long. It's ridiculous. Like, oh yeah, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And we didn't like this, but that happened. And we didn't like that, but that happened because of it. And this happened. I mean, it, it, it's, it's unreal. And I look at that, and I go, why do I ever worry? Why am I ever concerned? God knows what he's doing. And he calls us into some situations that are bonkers. He doesn't call us because we're prepared. He prepares us for what he sends us into. He doesn't wait and go, okay, now you're ready. Now you're ready. It's him. It's always him. In our weakness, in our strength, in our leadership, it's always him. Because he's bringing about his ends. A world worshiping a risen Lord Jesus. That's, that's a battle worth fighting. That's a battle worth fighting. That's a name worth proclaiming, a God worth worshiping.